The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 16th, 2021. This week, the Biden administration hosted a virtual summit on countering ransomware with representatives from over 30 countries. Notably, Russia was not invited to the meeting. Some U.S. officials have said that the Russian government tacitly approves of ransomware attacks from Russia-based groups. For this week, I chose an episode from December 24th, 2016 in which Evan Perkovsky and Michael Poznanski talk about a piece they had written on Russian cyber intrusions, what deterrence of Russian interference would look like, and why it is necessary. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 24th, 2016. Though the president-elect continues to deny reports of Russian interference in the presidential election, Evidence is mounting that agents linked to the Kremlin hacked and leaked Democratic Party information in an effort both to delegitimize American democracy and to swing the election toward Donald Trump. There's a growing consensus that the United States should respond to this cyber attack, but how can it best do so? To address this question, we brought Evan Perkoski and Michael Poznanski on the podcast to talk about their recent piece on cyber deterrence and attribution in War on the Rocks, titled An Eye for an Eye, Deterring Russian Cyber Intrusions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 202, Deterring Russian Cyber Intrusions with Evan Perkoski and Michael Poznanski. Mike, why don't you just start by bringing us up to speed with sort of what's going on right now that's brought us together to talk about cyber deterrence. Uh, So for anyone who's been mercifully living under a rock for the last few weeks, How do things now stand regarding Russian interference in the U.S. election, and what does cyber deterrence have to do with that? Sure. So first, thanks uh, very much for having us on. We really appreciate it. And essentially where we're at today uh, is uh, we're in a space where we're trying to figure out what the United States can do uh, in response to allegations or revelations, would be more accurate, uh, of Russian interference in the 2016 election. And specifically by interference here, we mean a specific type of disinformation campaign where Russian entities uh, in the intelligence agencies uh, stole information from the DNC that was embarrassing to the Clinton campaign and the Democrats and gave it to WikiLeaks and distributed it uh, in order to uh, undermine confidence in the U.S. election and uh, now what seems to be the consensus actually helped Donald Trump and her secretary Clinton. So obviously the United States uh, Congress and the Obama administration is trying to figure out what, if anything, the United States can do about it. Obviously, it's too late uh, to deter uh, meddling in the election. It's already happened this round. So what we're looking now to do is how we might deter meddling in future U.S. elections and actually, as we can talk about later, how to potentially deter meddling in the elections of U.S. allies. And so Evan and I came in Uh, to this debate by thinking through what America might do, particularly in the cyber domain, uh, to deter future meddling. And again, as we can talk about, there are many other options the United States has, from sanctions uh, to diplomatic solutions to potentially deter this kind of thing. But our goal was, was limited to what we might do in a proportionate way in the cyber space. 
So we're recording this on Thursday morning. Uh, so last night, the security firm CrowdStrike, uh, which was involved in examining the DNC hack, announced strong evidence that the malware used to hack the DNC was also used in a Russian hacking effort against the Ukrainian military, uh, suggesting with high confidence that Fancy Bear, which was one of the entities that's penetrated the DNC, works for Russia's military intelligence agency uh, known as the GRU. So the, the evidence is really mounting at this point, um, even though there was already a preponderance of evidence that First off, that Russia has interfered in the election and that cyber deterrence is something that's really, really going to be important. Yeah, and I would just add, it's it's interesting, uh, this report that CrowdStrike directly linked uh, the election interference to the GRU, Russia's military intelligence agency. And it's important to note, of course, that CrowdStrike is not affiliated uh, with the U.S. government. So we have 17 intelligence agencies plus a private security, a computer security firm, uh, corroborating what many have long suspected, that this was uh, perpetrated by the Russian government, and reports also suggest that Putin himself might have actually given the order. And just to add to that, too, I think it is important to realize that this evidence sort of is kind of the smoking gun that a lot of people have been asking for that ties the Russians to the uh, hacking attempt. So Vladimir Putin himself has said the U.S. should stop talking about it or provide some evidence to actually link them. And President-elect Trump has also questioned whether or not there is a verifiable tie between the Russian government and the hackers who did break into the DNC and release these emails. So CrowdStrike's report really is important that it gives us some firm, concrete evidence that ties the hacking in Ukraine to the American uh, hacking. Right. So, Evan, why don't you talk me through your really interesting piece about cyber deterrence and war on the rocks, so what you guys called an eye for an eye deterring Russian cyber intrusions. So, specifically, you were focusing on the question of attribution, uh, how we know or don't know who's responsible for a cyber attack. So, what's your basic argument here? So, uh, our argument is basically that Deterrence in cyberspace looks a lot like deterrence in other more traditional realms, so whether that's conventional arms or using sanctions to deter somebody. And a lot of the literature so far on cyber deterrence has said, well, it's really difficult because cyber uh, operations are typically very secretive. You don't know who's launching the attack, and afterwards it's very hard to uh, have attribution, to know who it was who actually attacked you. What we argue in this piece, though, is that you actually can forego this sort of plausible deniability and secrecy after you conduct an attack. And by foregoing that secrecy and sort of leaving a calling card or by alerting your adversary that it was you who launched an operation, you can sort of approximate more traditional deterrence. In the U.S. case, what we argue they can do is launch a cyber operation, but leave a calling card or communicate either privately or publicly with the Russian government and say, yes, this was us. And in doing so, they can demonstrate their capacity to launch these sorts of attacks, demonstrate their credibility that they will respond in the future in similar ways, and ultimately deter the Russians from future meddling. Yeah, and I, I, I would just add one, one quick thing, which is that uh, Evan's spot on, I think, that our, our piece is making the case that cyber deterrence does look in many respects like traditional deterrence. One potential caveat is that cyber deterrence requires that, as Evan hinted at, you demonstrate your capabilities first. So in this case, a retaliatory attack against Russia uh, would be necessary in order to demonstrate that there's more pain to be levied in the future should Russia perpetrate additional behavior. Whereas in, in more traditional domains of deterrence, you might just be able to threaten particular damage or pain without actually demonstrating capabilities first. In Obama's final press conference a few weeks ago, he, he said, uh, our goal continues to be to send a clear message to Russia or others not to do this to us because we can do stuff to you. Online, there was some sort of making fun of the, like, we can do stuff to you phrasing. But I wonder if you think that that, that sort of vagueness um, in what the stuff exactly is that we would be doing is actually indicative of the sort of particular difficulties and perhaps anonymity of cyber deterrence. Yeah, I think I'll take a stab at this first, but there are two important things here. One is that with cyber operations, you do have to be sort of vague before you launch the operation. Uh, in cyberspace, you really can't go in and say, and tell your adversary exactly what you're going to attack and how you're going to attack it. Because how cyber operations function, you really need to keep that part of the operation a secret before you launch it. Because if you don't do that, you give your adversary the ability to stop the operation before it begins. So if you say you're going to exploit some vulnerability or attack infrastructure, 
they can take steps to increase monitoring or even disconnect these sorts of networks from the outside internet to make it much more difficult to perpetrate and be successful in your operation. I think the second thing that comes out of Obama's statements is that we really still are figuring out what states can and can't do in with their cyber operations. So what are their actual capabilities? And there's something important uh, significant for not revealing everything you can and cannot accomplish, but leaving some uncertainty to your adversary. So I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, we can hurt you, but we're not going to tell you exactly how we're going to do it. You suggest there's a, a range of degrees of secrecy within which cyber operations can be conducted. Um, in a previous piece on War on the Rocks, you wrote that they, they can be covert or not covert, and there are different degrees of acknowledgments. So we've, we've talked about how the United States might acknowledge its role in uh, potential deterrent action against Russia, but where on your scale should we understand the Russian interference election operation to be located? Yeah, so this is a fantastic uh, question. And just to recap for those who might not have, might not have read the piece previously, we argue that there's kind of two types of deception in cyberspace operations. Uh, one is acting clandestinely, which essentially means keeping secret the plans and actual execution of an operation, which is what Evan was just referring to. And we argue that this is essential uh, to the success of cyber operations so as not to alert the victim to precisely the vector or vulnerability you intend to exploit. The second type of deception is, is covert action, and this is whether or not you forego plausible deniability and claim credit for your attack or not. And to your question about how Russia uh, was utilizing deception in this case, um, there's reason to believe that Russia intended to act covertly, that is, at least plausibly deny uh, their involvement in the election hacks. And in, in this piece and some of our other ongoing research, we show that there are a class of cyber operations in which you would not want to forego anonymity and claim credit, either publicly or privately. So intelligence gathering operations or these kind of disinformation campaigns uh, are prime examples where you don't actually get much benefit from willingly outing yourself and claiming responsibility. And there's this great piece by Thomas uh, Ridd in Esquire that shows that uh, Russian intelligence agencies and those associated with the attack were actually surprised with how quick attribution actually transpired by CrowdStrike and others, which suggests that they intended to keep uh, their identity hidden, because there's no real benefit for Russia saying, yes, we were meddling in the U.S. election, as opposed to, say, a coercive strategy of the kind we're, we're talking about here. Part of that, I imagine, is that the specific kind of meddling was in a large part, so it's based on this hacking and leaking of DNC and other Democratic Party information, that the the campaign was based on the information that was being released, being seen in the U.S. media as credible, that this was something that could be reported on uh, these emails that were leaked and that if we were aware of that Russia had been behind them, that that would have um, sort of limited the extent to which this information campaign was taken seriously. Yeah, precisely. I guess the logic would be that were Russia to stamp uh, the operation and say, yes, we were the ones responsible for it, it would create even more uh, uncertainty about the authenticity of these particular documents, although there was certainly some concern of that. Uh, but exactly to your point, um, it, would, it would be probably counterproductive to Russia, uh, for Russia to claim credit in this case, uh, so as to under, further undermine the veracity of these documents. So it seems like there are two main uh, goals that the Russians had in the cyber operation. And the first one was potentially undermining confidence in our election. And the second was helping Donald Trump to defeat Secretary Clinton in the general election. And neither of those really benefit from being associated with the Russians. And actually, that would be undermined by doing so. So rather, they prefer to just kind of release this information and have its effect on its own. But being associated with that really doesn't give them any benefit whatsoever. At this point, as we've discussed, uh, there's, a, there's a pretty strong consensus, uh, not only that Russia was involved in this interference, but that this kind of interference is not something that the United States should consider acceptable by any means. So the question is, should the United States respond to this? Yeah, I think it's, it's undoubtedly the case that uh, first, first and foremost, election interference uh, by, let's say, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War was a fairly common occurrence uh, throughout the developing world. It was kind of one of the most uh, useful and common strategies of covert action for many, many years. So there's not necessarily something new in this, but what many have pointed out is, A, it's new that this kind of election interference is being 
uh, oriented against the United States. Uh, and secondly, its sophistication uh, is also seemingly unprecedented, uh, which, which seems to be the case. So th I think the risk of the United States doing nothing is sending signals essentially that foreign adversaries can pursue these kinds of disinformation campaigns in future elections with little consequence. This doesn't mean, however, that the United States necessarily needs to respond publicly or else undermine its credibility. As long as the United States is signaling, even if privately, to the adversary responsible for the meddling, it's possible to at least deter that particular adversary, in this case Russia, from pursuing these kinds of disinformation campaigns in the future, which I think everybody would agree is probably a worthwhile goal. And so I think what it really comes down to here is what sort of precedent does the United States want to set for these sorts of behaviors? And if America doesn't respond, they risk establishing a precedent that such intrusions in, in, in electoral interference uh, are, not, are costless, that Russia can do this without any retaliation or any cost themselves. And this is important both in terms of future U.S. elections, that we want to have fair and free elections that are domestic entirely and not free of foreign influence, we also have to think about uh, foreign elections. So there are important elections coming up in Germany and France, Italy, and potentially Greece. And what if Russia begins to interfere in those elections as well? So retaliating here, responding because of the, the United States interference might send a signal that this sort of interference won't be allowed elsewhere as well. The director of Germany's domestic intelligence agency recently released a statement saying, uh, quote, we're increasingly having to deal with aggressive cyber espionage. Um, and said that indications of attempts to influence the German Bundestag elections in the coming year are intensifying. So, Evan, this, this isn't only something that's backward-looking in terms of the election, the U.S. presidential election that just occurred. It's, it's forward-looking, and it's forward-looking in the immediate future. Exactly. So it doesn't have to do just with American elections, but it has to do with whether or not we tolerate this sort of uh, electoral interference, not only in the United States, but elsewhere in terms of our allies as well. So the New York Times recently ran a story by David Sanger essentially describing the difficulties that the administration is facing in making a decision on how to proceed, sort of weighing its deterrence options and working out what's the best way to move forward. And they don't seem to have reached a uh, conclusion on that, although, of course, it's hard to know for sure. So um, either if either of you want to weigh in, why is this a hard question of how to proceed, um, in which way to establish deterrence, and perhaps whether to do so uh, with public or private acknowledgement? Yeah, I'll take a, a crack at this first. Um, you know, one challenge the administration is facing, and this, this shows up in the, the Sanger article in the New York Times, is first, there's no guarantee that a retaliatory action in cyberspace would actually work. And so there's some concern on uh, the administration's part that looking uh, impotent, by which we mean trying to launch a cyber attack in retaliation to election meddling and failing, would be actually worse than inaction. And it's not clear that that's necessarily the case, but it's certainly clear that the administration is worried about that. A second concern is that this would lead to escalation. So if the United States retaliates uh, against Russia, they could retaliate in kind and on and on, and you have this spiral of cyber escalation. We're not terribly persuaded by this argument per se, particularly if the cyber response is limited uh, in its threat to uh, deterring future instances of this kind. Uh, and the third and final thing I will say is, we're making an appeal here for how the United States might deter future actions, but one could also just think about a response uh, as, as having no real coercive value per se, but just that the United States will respond to uh, this kind of interference without necessarily making any deterrent or, or coercive threats in the process, kind of a vengeance or revenge motive. And I think part of this thinking also comes from the fact that we often think about cyber operations as more of a weapon, like a gun or like nuclear weapons, but it's actually more like a medium. And in that medium, you can do lots of different things through cyber operations. You can uh, attack financial institutions, you can target individuals and try to release information, you can try to undermine elections. And so when you're thinking about what you want to do and how you want to retaliate in cyberspace, there really is a whole wide range of options that are available to states. And deciding upon the exact one is a lot more difficult than, say, if you want to use 
a conventional arm, like a gun, to attack somebody. Yeah, and I, I would just add, Evan, uh, you made me think of something, which is that it's also difficult to retaliate in a proportionate way, not just in cyberspace, but say against a Russian election, because Vladimir Putin doesn't have any real bona fide uh, political rivals. So it's not like the United States can simply say, we're now going to in interfere in your election, which would otherwise be free and fair and so forth. So the United States has to figure out other vectors or targets uh, to, to uh, hone its cyber retaliatory response against instead of just say elections. So it's a little harder in that respect as well. There's not a clear, uh, a clear direct proportionate response to interference in the US election in Russia. I think that's a broader problem for cyber operations in general is that we don't really have an established idea of what proportional responses look like. So what is proportional response that the U.S. can take that is proportional to meddling in our election? On uh, a conventional arms, it's much easier to know that if you attack one of our bases, we'll attack one of your bases. But in cyberspace, these proportional decisions are much more complicated. I think this, this question of sort of how to strike back against election interference gets to this question of escalation, um, that there's there's some indication that Vladimir Putin might have spearheaded this interference campaign uh, as a possibly as a act of retaliation against what he perceives as U.S. meddling behind the anti-Putin protests in 2011. Um, although, of course, it's, it's very difficult to know that. So I think that gets us to this question of sort of in the cyber domain, it's very difficult to know where we are in this cycle of escalation, whether we're beginning a response or whether the actor who we thought began the exchange is actually responding to something previously because there's such a broad range of types of action. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point, which is it's difficult to know that if Putin just perceived interference, say in the 2016 election, uh, as retaliation for interference uh, or, or inciting protests in 2011, that this was his form of retaliation. I think there are kind of two responses to that. One is uh, Putin certainly could have interfered in the 2012 election, and that would have been a more approximate, uh, pr proportionate response, whether or not it was justified is a whole other question, but in his mind, at least. Uh, the second is whether Putin actually believes that this is retaliation for 2011 or just said that would be observationally equivalent. And I think it's incumbent on the United States, even if Putin truly believes that, uh, to respond to interference at this high uh, level of an election. I think just, just letting it go unanswered uh, potentially sets a dangerous precedent and that the risks of potential escalation are outweighed by the risks or costs of actually doing nothing. And to add on to that, when you have two states that have such a long history, it is becomes harder and harder to know what states are retaliating against and what is driving their decision making. So we can expand this conversation to include uh, American support for Ukraine after, U after uh, Russia seized Crimea. We can also think about NATO enlargement. So there are lots of potential things that the Russians could be responding to. And so when you get down to these tit-for-tat strategies, it becomes harder and harder to know what exactly you're responding to. Mike, you mentioned that um, there's there's concern um, in the government, as expressed in the Sanger story in The Times, about uh, essentially beginning a cycle of escalation, but that the two of you don't feel that that's as big a concern. So can you expand on that? Why don't you think that's as big of a uh, problem as... Um, many people in the government apparently do. There's a few dimensions to this. I mean, one is we just don't know. Uh, we're kind of in charted, uncharted waters, so we just don't necessarily know what Russia's res response would be if the United States were to retaliate uh, for the disinformation campaign in this election. So it's not to say that there's no risk of escalation. It's just to say that uh, inherently assuming that that would be the case, uh, I think forecloses the possibility that Putin would view this as a fairly limited response uh, and would be quite aware of the behaviors he could refrain from doing uh, to avoid this kind of retaliation in the future. The second kind of argument that you've seen a lot floating around by the administration and others is that if the United States retaliates against Vladimir Putin, this is going to set a dangerous precedent. Uh, and that if you target critical infrastructure, for example, in Russia, it's going to allow others to do the same to the United States. And to begin with, that's certainly possible. It's, it's possible that if the United States targets critical infrastructure in Russia, uh, it could not only escalate, but set a precedent that this kind of thing is okay to do. 
and our, our kind of thought is that first, there's no guarantee that this is necessarily true, particularly given the circumscribed nature of the retaliatory response, which is just don't interfere in our elections or else uh, this kind of response, you can expect this kind of response from us. Uh, and the second is, it's just not clear that if the United States refrains from, say, targeting critical infrastructure, that others are going to refrain from doing it to us in the event that there is some political uh, or strategic uh, benefit to be gained from doing that. So we're not saying that the administration shouldn't take escalation or precedent-setting concerns seriously. Uh, what we're just saying is that we ought to think really hard about its, its likelihood and the costs and benefits of inaction relative to escalation, which is the real calculation they need to be making. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. 
it's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. And recently, statements from the White House have been suggesting that President Obama is looking for options that give him escalation dominance. So the ability to sort of end a conflict on his own terms uh, and how the, what sorts of operations that looks like and how you achieve that is definitely difficult. And as Mike said earlier, we're sort of in uncharted waters when it comes to, to cyberspace. But that is something that the administration is thinking about is how can we retaliate but limit the possibility of escalation and end it on our own terms. Yeah, and we should note as well, I mean, this is a long-standing debate in, in international security circles about whether or not the so-called spiral model or deterrence model best explains uh, geopolitics, right? So the spiral model is that escalation begets escalation. And so the best response to this kind of thing is actually restraint. Uh, the alternative is that by showing strength, you can actually deter rivals uh, from exploiting these kinds of opportunities in the future. So again, this is kind of a long-standing debate that dates back to the nuclear weapons uh, debates in the security studies space. And we think a similar debate uh, should and probably is being had in this case as well. Right. So there's an element of this that's sort of taking all the research and work that's been done on nuclear deterrence theory and now sort of applying it to cyber deterrence and figuring out where things do and don't fit in this new and different space. Yeah, precisely. I, 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 just to reiterate this point, um, it's, it's just not clear necessarily that the, the so-called spiral model, which is that escalation begets escalation, is an accurate reflection of the world. And, and again, this has been a long-standing debate. Uh, whether or not it's also true in the cyber domain is something new. So it's possible that, say, the spiral or deterrence model works in the nuclear domain and that either one of these or potentially none of them would work in the cyber domain. And part of what we're doing in this War on the Rocks piece is making the case that at least when it comes to our theories of deterrence and escalation, uh, cyber is not necessarily as novel uh, or as sui generis as it might seem. And we can actually draw on and appeal to these, these older, well-worn theories of, say, nuclear deterrence uh, and a lot of the things that, that the late Thomas Schelling was talking about to better understand what's likely to transpire in this case. Yeah, well, just one important thing to remember here, too, is that if we look at traditional models of deterrence, uh, oftentimes accepting some risk of escalation is necessary. And I think what the Obama administration is thinking through now is not whether or not we can find an option that has no risk of ex escalation, one that simply limits that risk. But we will have to accept some risk in the future. Part of your, your argument about how uh, this, how cyber deterrence perhaps isn't a totally sui generis beast um, in the way that some people have suggested is that there is the possibility for attribution. Um, and that that can be done either privately or publicly. So have you heard any deterrence options floated that strike you as particularly good or bad ideas? Um, and among those, would any fall into the uh, sphere of private or public attribution on the part of the United States? Yeah, I think um, one of the pieces we reference in, in uh, our recent article is that in general, uh, U.S. Cyber Command is interested in loud attributable cyber weapons. And there's a recent article that former CIA Deputy Director uh, Michael Morell also claimed that the U.S. Uh, response should be overt uh, in, in response to the Russian disinformation campaign in the, in the election. And that's about as close as we've seen to an uh, articulation of a strategy that would look something like deterrence. But one could read Morell's 
statement in not just that the United States response should be overt in the sense that the public and the world at large would know about it, but overt in the sense that Russia would know about it. So this is what we're calling private credit claiming. So these, I think the military's intuition and Michael Morell's intuition that if the U.S. is going to respond, at least Russia should know about it. If not, uh, the greater public is the right one. And the reason is this allows Russia to update their assessment of who it is uh, that attack them and the kinds of behaviors they can avoid in the future to avoid these kinds of responses. So we haven't seen anything explicitly that kind of models the argument we're putting out here, but these, these statements about voluntary attribution and the United States willingly making their sponsorship known, we think is the right one. When you think about public versus private communication and options for retaliation uh, for the U.S. against Russia, you also have to pr uh, place this in the broader political context of the Russian state. And one of the things to remember is that President Putin does enjoy incredibly high levels of support, and he often runs on this sort of mentality of uh, a resurgent Russia or bringing Russia back to greatness. And because of this, any sort of highly overt public acts of aggression by the United States might be met with more retaliation or more uh, angered by the Russian public, which might not bode well for limiting escalation. So in that sense, perhaps private credit claiming might be a better idea than public credit claiming. Right. And especially if there was a case that President Putin was at odds with the public or he enjoyed low support, maybe having a more public option would turn the tide against him and maybe reduce his public support. But right now, it doesn't seem like that would be the case. Yeah. And, and we also think that a lot of... so. The way we read Michael Morell's statement that the United States response should be overt is, again, not, not necessarily public. Uh, the way we're kind of thinking about it is private and public credit claiming both involve cases of the United States willingly making their sponsorship known. The question is whether they're just making it known and communicating it to the individual target or whether they're publicizing it for a much broader audience. And there's some really good research on this that we link to in the piece uh, by colleagues of ours at Austin Carson at Chicago and Karen Yarhimilo at, at Princeton on how covert communication and signaling actually works and can be credible. And so this is kind of how we're thinking about the advantages and disadvantages of public versus private credit, credit claiming. But again, both involve the United States owning its attacks. There's also this interesting question of the timing of, of the response, given that President Obama now has roughly a month left in office. So how does the fact that the reins of power are soon going to be handed over to an administration that appears so far to be less inclined to take this interference seriously affect deterrence calculations? Yes, this is a major issue right now. It's something we've thought a lot about. But basically, any strategy that we're advocating requires the administration to be on board and to make that ultimate decision. So it comes down to President Obama or President-elect Trump saying, yes, this is a course of action I want to follow, and undertaking that. And right now, we don't actually know if President-elect Trump wants to retaliate. Uh, there are close connections between his members of his cabinet and uh, the Russian state. And maybe he might be happy that this sort of information maybe gave him a leg up and therefore is less likely to retaliate in the future. But because it does come down to the president to sign off on these operations, it really is a major uncertainty moving forward. Yeah, and this is, just to add on to what Evan said, this is one of the biggest challenges and potential weaknesses of what we're arguing, which is that this requires not only the Obama administration to retaliate, but the entire logic of what we're arguing requires that Putin would expect this kind of retaliation in the future. So let's look ahead to 2020 for a moment and presume that the Trump administration is in charge of whether or not the U.S. retaliates in response to a similar kind of disinformation campaign, whoever the Democratic candidate may be. If Trump shows little to no interest uh, that he would retaliate in response to this kind of thing. And so far, there's, there's no reason to be encouraged uh, that he, will, he would respond. Um, this would really undermine the deterrent signal of anything the Obama administration does right now, because again, it requires the threat of future pain, which requires an administration willing to levy that kind of pain in response to these attacks. And I should note as well, this shouldn't be a bipartisan, uh, or it shouldn't be a partisan issue, it should be a bipartisan issue that all Americans, Republicans or Democrats should want to deter and forestall these kinds of uh, 
foreign acts of interference. Is this sort of a lost opportunity then? Um, is this something that the United States essentially, sh- we should have engaged in deterrence while this disinformation was happening during the election and now that there's sort of a month left in the Obama presidency, it's too late? Or is there still, are there still things that can be done despite the fact that there's the significant uncertainty as to whether the next administration will sign on to them? Yeah, I think, um, I I don't think it's a lost opportunity in the following sense. I mean, many have have levied criticism against the Obama administration for not acting earlier, and and maybe that's right. But when it comes to deterrence and deterring these kinds of particular campaigns, it's not clear necessarily that acting earlier would have mattered. And there's several reasons for that. One is deterring interference in future elections means 2018 and the midterms in 2020 in the next presidential election. So acting in October uh, versus December doesn't really help with that. Uh, The second is if we want to deter Russian interference in the elections of our allies, like Germany, that's still next year. So we're still dealing now with the Trump administration. Uh, And so again, October versus December, or even the summer, uh, it's not clear that, that that would have had a significant effect. I think one could make the case that had the administration acted earlier, say in the summer, for example, and the American public had gotten on board with the fact that Russia was interfering, this might have limited the impact and the harm it did to Hillary Clinton. The challenge there is it's impossible to know what the actual effect of the disinformation campaign was on the election, right? There were many other factors uh, that, that played into the ultimate calculation of who won and who lost. So it's not necessarily clear that even that Uh, would have swayed the election, although it might have had an impact on whether Russia continued. And to add on to that, one of the core requirements of deterrence is consistency. So it's not about when or if someone, uh, President Obama, responded, but it's about being consistent in how you respond to external influences in your election. And so I don't think it really matters when President Obama does respond, but as long as there is some response from the administration, then we can try to establish a deterrent precedent and hopefully deter future meddling. Uh, But without having some sort of response that we can point to, it's going to be difficult to cultivate that precedent. Going back to this Sanger piece again, uh, he has an interesting quote from Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, who suggested that, um, quote, given that Obama has only a few more weeks in office, I think he needs to focus his remaining time on attribution, the declassification of intelligence so there's no ambiguity about Russian actions. So what do you think about that argument, that there's sort of given the the little time that's left um, and the uncertainty of the next administration's behavior, that declassifying information might actually be a better strategy for the Obama administration than carrying out some kind of deterrent cyber attack. Yeah, I, I think there are three basic strategies the Obama administration can pursue. Now, whether or not, as McFall said, there, uh, he, the Obama administration fo- should focus on one presumes that uh, the administration is incapable necessarily of pursuing these three strategies, right? So one is uh, by this strategy of deterrence by denial. So just trying to make it harder for foreign adversaries, Russia and otherwise, to do this kind of thing in the future. Uh, Second is declassification. And there have been some good bipartisan uh, calls for this in Congress uh, by Lindsey Graham and John McCain on the Republican side and others. Uh, McConnell and, and Paul Ryan have been a little more tepid in their response and think that we don't need an independent investigation and that the intelligence committees in Congress can handle it. Uh, but that's the second thing. And I think uh, the Obama administration should absolutely pursue with full vigor uh, declassification or at least investigation into this kind of uh, interference and in trying to establish as much evidence as possible, uh, which would bind the admin- future administration uh, in some way, in that this report will be out there and it will be difficult to disprove, as opposed to waiting for the next administration to pursue or support an investigation like this, which is questionable. And the third, of course, is deterrence. So whether the Obama administration should focus its time on one, two, or all of these strategies uh, is a question for how many things the Obama administration can pursue at once. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that they can pursue at least two, if not more, of these. Uh, but certainly, I, I would agree with McFaul that the uh, Obama administration should uh, pursue with, with full vigor the investigation at the very least. 
And I think one of the points that Mike made, his second point is, re point is really important, <clears throat> that declassifying these documents now, while we actually can declassify them, is really important because we don't know if President Trump and his administration would want to declassify these documents. If they don't declassify them, then they have a much freer hand to do what they want, either to retaliate or not retaliate. But if President Obama can manage to declassify these documents and make it very clear that Russia was responsible for this electoral meddling, then he might, as Mike said, tie the hands of the future administration and require them to actually respond. Yeah, and, and I, I would add, at the very least, you know, obviously there will be concerns about whether declassifying uh, evidence of Russian interference would compromise sources and methods of the intel community. And that's certainly a concern. So at the very least, we should have an investigation, even if it's even if it remains classified on the books, uh, whether or not it's declassified is, is a question for uh, the intelligence community and administration to negotiate. But at the very least, an investigation uh, of interference, even one that's classified, would be better, all else equal, than not doing one at all, or at least waiting. One final benefit of having a comprehensive investigation is it allows us to understand how this operated, how it functioned, and what can be done in future cases where we suspect external influences. So how should the president respond? What should be done with this information? How should the media outlets uh, respond? And what steps can be taken to cut off their access? And I think having a comprehensive investigation to sort of give us uh, the steps or the playbook to deal with these sorts of events in the future, where it seems like these are going to become more and more uh, common. Right. And we've, we've seen indications or suggestions that uh, a handful of uh, senators from both sides of the aisle are interested in having conducting investigations either um, in the Armed Services or Foreign Affairs Committees or in a separate select committee that would be established for this purpose. So we'll, we'll see if that goes forward over the next few weeks. Um, I'm also curious, so Mike, you mentioned earlier that there's, there's an element of this where striking back at Russia could be deterrence, or there's also another form that, or another way we could read it that would be as vengeance. Um, so I'm, I'm interested if you want to expand on that. Like, what is the difference between those two things, and that they're they're both sort of backward looking insofar as they're responding to Russian action. Um, but is there sort of a value to vengeance, as you put it, on its own terms? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I, the way I view the vengeance motive is exactly as you described, which is backward looking. This is the idea that the American public uh, is outraged that a foreign adversary interfered in our election and therefore we're really mad and just want to do something about it. The advantage of that is it doesn't matter a whole lot whether or not it actually has a deterrent effect in the future. So that's the forward-looking strategy, but just that it would satisfy, uh, it would feel satisfying for the American public to respond to this kind of thing and whether or not uh, it, it mattered, by which we mean deterring future interference is kind of orthogonal to that point. Uh, whether or not uh, it would have the deterrent effect, it, it would matter in the following sense. Uh, the vengeance motive wouldn't necessarily require that the United States credit claim, either publicly or privately. It would probably just be enough that Russia knew or suspected it was the United States. So that's another key difference, which is that it wouldn't have to be tied to coercive threat, where the United States willingly outs itself and says, if you continue to interfere, you can expect this kind of pain. All the United States would have to do uh, is levy some sort of pain against uh, the Russian government, whether that's targeting critical infrastructure, uh, oligarchs close to Vladimir Putin and otherwise. So there are some key differences um, between the two strategies, not least of which, as you put it, would be one's backward looking, the vengeance motive, and one is forward looking, the deterrence motive. Uh, we understand uh, why some would be attracted to the idea of the vengeance motive, but we think a more productive strategy would be to actually deter these kind of acts of interference going into the future. Uh, and it's only going to become uh, more, uh, th these, these capabilities are only going to become more accessible, not just by state governments, but non-state actors as well. So we think it's important to, to look past vengeance uh, and deter these kind of things. And it might actually have a dual function in that regard. But at the same time, I think you still can marry the desire for vengeance in the short term with the desire for deterrence in the long term that by responding in some way, President Obama or President-elect Trump can satisfy much of the American public's desire to hit back at the Russians for interfering in our elections. 
but they also can leverage that to try to deter them in the future. This is where it comes down to what Mike said by leaving some calling card or communicating to them that the precise reason for this retaliation was their meddling. And this will happen again in the future if they continue to do so. Yeah, I, I will also add, though, I mean, it's, it's really difficult for the Obama administration to pursue the vengeance and deterrence uh, goals simultaneously. And the reason is uh, the deterrence model that we're putting forward is probably best left for private signaling to the Russian administration. So the Obama administration is necessarily going to be unable to come out to the American public and say, hey, here's what we did to Russia. Uh, and we, we showed them for interfering in the election. And this harkens back to something that happened to, to Richard Nixon in the 1960 presidential election against JFK, in which Kennedy was railing against Eisenhower and Nixon for being weak on Cuba, when in fact in March of 1960, the Eisenhower administration authorized what later became the Bay of Pigs operation to oust Castro. But Nixon simply couldn't talk about it, and therefore had to allow Kennedy to make him seem weak and Kennedy seem strong on the Cuba issue. So something similar is happening here, uh, or could happen here, where a deterrent strategy that would be effective uh, if, if done in the way we described by private credit claiming just to the Kremlin wouldn't give Obama administration or anybody else uh, in the government this kind of credibility boost among the U.S. public or something like that. But this also isn't to suggest that, that a sort of response doesn't have to be unidimensional. Uh, President Obama could launch a multidimensional response that does have public components to it, but also private components. And this is sort of what he suggested when he said recently that there will be some responses that we see and some that we don't see. So there could be a public element that will satisfy the public's desire for revenge and to hit back at the Russians. But at the same time, there could be a more private element that does accomplish this deterrent, uh, <clears throat> deterrent goal that is less visible to the public and less sort of in their mindset. All right. And on that note, uh, that's all the time we have. So we should wrap up. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for coming on. This is a great discussion. Yeah, thanks very much for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please spread the word and promote the podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. A quick programming note. We'll be taking next week off and we'll return in 2017. See you on the other side of the new year, and thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>